results. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. First, Samuel chapter 12. Again, I will begin reading at verse 12. Samuel is speaking to the people of Israel, and this is what he says. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you've chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we belong to you. All who are in Christ are yours. You're our king. And God, we understand so well what the people of Israel are like, for we're just like them. But God, we need to see what you're like, your tremendous grace, your glory, your presence, your strength. God, we need to be overwhelmed. We need to have the right kind of fear in approaching you, but yet we need not be afraid. Lord, this paradox can only be explained and lived by the power of your spirit in us. Would you do that for us now? Would you give us this window of time to listen? Remove distractions from us. Let us be still and know that you're God and hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin really at the first part of chapter 12. That's why I wanted you to open the Pew Bible, because Samuel, Samuel starts this chapter in a real interesting way. What he is doing to the people of Israel is saying, I want you to put me on trial. I want you to examine the life that I have lived before you. And he begins to ask them a series of questions. Starting in verse 3, here I am, he says, 
Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, again, the people of Israel, you've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. What Samuel is saying is, put me on trial. I've been called to be the prophet. I was prayed for. I was installed. I have led you. And with integrity and by God's grace, find fault. Is there fault? Now, remember, he's a man. He is a sinner. But in his leadership of the people of Israel, he can stand before them and say, where is the fault? What he is saying to the people of Israel is, I, as the prophet called, have been faithful. But then he moves to something far more important. And he says, let's essentially put God on trial. Has God been faithful to you? And then he begins from verse 6 to about 14, describing in narrative how God has been faithful to them. He says, when you face the enemy Egypt, your fathers essentially cried out to the Lord and the Lord delivered you. The Lord was faithful to his promise because you're his people. He then goes on to describe another enemy and he says, you cried or the people before you cried out to the Lord, the leaders of Israel. And again, the Lord delivered them. But then he moves to the verse we're in, in verse 12, and it says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, that's really significant. It doesn't say, you cried out to the Lord. It says, you said to me, no, a king shall reign over us. The people of Israel have been led by leaders who did sin. They went through cycles of sin, oppression, and deliverance. But when oppression hit because they had disobeyed God, they cried out to the Lord for help. They cried out for the Lord to deliver them. And he did, grace upon grace upon grace. But in this case, the leaders of Israel, when they come to a moment when they see the king of the Ammonites, Nahash, they didn't cry out to the Lord. They called for a king. They didn't cry out to the Lord. They cried out for a king. Give us a king. Saul was the king to be delivered. Samuel rebuked the people for this lack of faithfulness. And that's what he's doing here again. It's not the first time that he has told the people of Israel, you shouldn't have asked for a king. But he's going to do it in a way that's stronger than they have seen before. So that, and this is his earnest prayer, they would see their sin through the eyes of God instead of through their own eyes, which is really important for us. The people of Israel had heard we shouldn't have asked for an earthly king because we had a king. And this king has been faithful to us. Not once has he failed us. He has always delivered us. But now, looking at the circumstances around them, looking at other nations who have earthly kings that are measurable, that are visible, that they can comprehend, that's what they want. So they're putting their security in something that ultimately is empty compared to what God has revealed to them about himself time and time again. So in this moment, Samuel is saying, judge me, have I been faithful? Judge God, has God been faithful? Yes, yes, now I'm going to judge you. You have not been faithful. You were unfaithful 
breaking your covenant when you asked for this earthly king. And it's evil. It's vile. It's wrong. They had heard this verbiage before. They had heard this verbal exhortation. But Samuel is still their prophet. And he is saying, though I'm getting old, though my time of leading, leading is soon coming to an end, this is what you need to hear once again. In asking for an earthly king, you committed sin, and that sin is evil. But I think as he's proclaiming this, as he's preaching this, he has the sense that the people of Israel, the congregation of Israel, is just looking at him. Yeah, we, we know. We know it was a sin. The temptation of man is to minimize it. The temptation of man is to say, you know what? We're just a little bit sick. We just made a few bad decisions. Instead of living what the word of God says, that we all were born separated from God, we all were slaves to this sin. And so Samuel does what really is remarkable. He says, I am going to show you something of the power of God that you haven't yet seen. So in verse 15, it says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your kings. Now, this is verse 16, therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Now I wanna talk about standing still before God. Psalm 4610, it's one of my favorite Psalms. That verse says, be still and know that I am God. I tend to think sometimes we, we picture that verse as Christians going to a place of deep contemplation, getting quiet, maybe having a little bit of neat music on that's really getting us in the mood. Maybe there's a meditative spirit. We're being still and knowing that he is God. And while that actually is appropriate and, and fine to do, that's not what that verse means. The verse is actually a military phrase. It means drop your weapons before this holy, powerful, omnipotent God. This God who is utterly set apart, transcendent, all glorious, the one who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. Be still and know that he is God. You are coming before God. Isn't that amazing? Drop your weapons. You have nothing to bring. And so Samuel, in the same way, is saying, be still and see this thing, this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Well, what is this great thing? Begins with the question. Samuel in verse 17 says, is not wheat harvest today? Now that's significant. Here's why. Wheat harvest was in May and June. May and June, for the people of Israel, was a dry season, no rain. The raining season is finished. The crops have been watered. Now the harvest is present. And the time of harvest is a time when the weather is peaceful. It's dry, it's time to collect. And so when Samuel says, is it not wheat harvest? Is today not harvest day? He says something very specific because he's about to call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain. Now he's the prophet of Israel. So he says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see. Now, if you didn't know what it said next, what would you fill in? You'd probably say, you will know and see the power of God. 
you'll know and see that God responded to my request. And when I asked for thunder and rain, he answered it and he brought it. But that is not what the word of God says. The word of God through the mouth of Samuel says this, you shall know and see that your wickedness is great. Isn't that interesting? I'm gonna ask the Lord to bring rain and thunder on a day when it shouldn't rain and thunder so that you may see that your wickedness is great. Samuel has told them their wickedness is great. Samuel has said, you, you have sinned and committed this evil by asking for an earthly king when you had a faithful king already. And it's wrong. They weren't getting the message. So now he's adding to the verbal message a visual aid that nobody could deny. The visual aid would be thunder and rain so that all would see and know that their wickedness is great in asking for a king. So verse 18, Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Well, you would too. If I this morning could say, in order that you might have a visual aid to follow along with my verbal message, I'm gonna call upon the Lord to thunder and rain, even though it could be raining in any time in Dallas, I'm gonna do it. And all of a sudden there was a clap of thunder and a huge storm hit. You would talk about this sermon in a different way than you might be tempted to talk about. It would be a pretty amazing moment where God was doing something that seemed to be directly connected to what I was doing. People, I'm not the prophet of Israel. I am a man who is a pastor called to faithfully bring the word. There is an element of the priestly gift, the prophetic gift, and a kingly gift for pastors. But we as the body of Christ are the priesthood of all believers. In this moment, the prophet possessed powers unique to this time. And Samuel wasn't wondering, if I say this, is God gonna show up? He was saying what he was saying because he knew it's what God wanted. God wanted the people of Israel to see not only that he was great and all powerful, but that their sin, their wickedness was great. He wanted them to see their sin, to see who they were in this decision to reject God for what it really was through the eyes of God, not through the eyes of themselves. You see, our tendency is to see our sin through the eyes of our own flesh, and we will minimize it. We will call it less than it is. We will surround ourselves with people who will do the same. It might be what Jerry Bridges call, calls cruise control Christianity, where we become comfortable with a certain amount or certain types of sin, and then together we hit cruise control and we just follow each other. God is saying through Samuel, this is wicked. And I want the people to know how wicked it really is. So Samuel says what God calls him to say, and he calls upon the Lord, and the Lord sends thunder, and he sends rain, and it says, all the people greatly feared the Lord. Let's talk about fear of the Lord for a minute. In the world in which we live, especially the Bible Belt, there is a sense where it's not real popular to think about fearing the Lord. Why would we fear the Lord? Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my friend. And you know what? That's actually true. But he's also a king. He is also your elder brother. He is God. 
Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be in relationship with him, the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one true God. But he's God. There is a sense where we don't like to think about the fear of God. Well, I'm pretty confident the people of Israel didn't either. And that's what led them to this place. Their lack of an appropriate fear of God led them to a place to say, I would rather trust in an earthly king. I would rather exchange the faithful presence of God who's been leading us doing these demonstrative works that are miraculous for something I can understand, maybe even control, certainly comprehend. And it was evil in God's eyes. And so Samuel, it says, called upon the Lord, he sent thunder and rain, and the people feared the Lord. My friends, fearing God is a good thing. Fearing what God will do in order to bring his perfect justice to the world and to people is a good thing. But it must be matched, not balanced, matched with the reality of not being afraid of God. And that's what Samuel's about to do. This is the paradox of the gospel. Verse 19, and all of the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. In other words, what Samuel wanted to happen, happened. He had given them the verbal rebuke. You shouldn't have asked for a king. It's evil in the sight of the God. They just weren't getting it. So he calls upon the Lord to bring a visual aid. It thunders. It rains at a season it shouldn't have. They can't deny it. That created fear in them. Fear of their own wickedness and fear of the living God. And what do they do? They do what they should have done from the beginning. Cry out to God. They didn't cry out to God. They called for a king, an earthly king. When they cry out to a God this time, they go to their prophet Samuel, the mediator. Here he's playing a priestly role. And they say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. I believe in that statement. The people of Israel really thought they might die. If the prophet of God has the power to call upon God to do what he just did, certainly that God has the power to do anything he wants. If this rain doesn't stop, it's possible that it'll destroy our crops. It actually is possible that we might die. And there was real fear in their eyes towards this. But I also think something else was happening. And we might not like to think of it this way, but I think the people of Israel felt they deserved death. That's what was happening with this conviction. And so in that fear, they went to their mediator, their prophet, essentially their priest, and said, pray for your servants to the Lord, verse 19, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. My friends, when we sin, and we do, all of us, me too. I read the public confession with all of you at 9.30, and I need to read it again at 11. Not simply going through the motions. It's just there's about an hour between. Plenty of time for me to sin. If it was half an hour, 
plenty of time for me to sin. We constantly need to see our sin through the eyes of God, but not just our sin. What Samuel brings next is utterly amazing, and it might at first seem confusing. They've asked Samuel to pray for them. Then verse 20, listen to what Samuel says. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. Yes, you have done all this evil. He's not shying away from what it is. And as a church, we're not going to either. Yes, it is evil. You're asking for a king was wrong. Seeing it through God's eyes, it's far more wrong than you realize. When we trust in earthly kings, when we trust in things that actually are empty, which he'll talk about in a minute, we are committing sin. And that sin through the eyes of God is far more evil than we realize. We want to minimize it. But when we see it through God's eyes, it is what it is. And it requires a response. Samuel says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. He calls them to action. Do you see it? Don't, don't stop following. Continue to follow God. Follow him with all your heart. Here's why. He moves on down and he says, verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. We need to fear the Lord because he's the Lord. We need to fear God because he's God. But we don't need to be afraid of him forsaking us. No matter what sin you feel like he could never forgive you for, unless it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which means basically rejecting God, he'll forgive you. No matter what it is, no matter how evil you think it is, he's God. He's holy. It is evil, but you don't need to be afraid, dear child, of coming to your heavenly father. For verse 22, Samuel says, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. It's about his glory. It's about his power for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God is pleased to call us his own. Not only on days when you might think you're really being faithful, but if you're in Christ and have trusted Christ alone for your salvation, he's pleased to call you his beloved daughters, his beloved sons. That's the gospel. He's still God. We should have a holy, awesome, reverent fear of him. But we should not be afraid of him. Here's what that looks like. We live in a world today where there's very little fear of God in the church. I see it in my life. I see it in my kids' lives. I see it in their friends' lives. I see it in their friends' parents' lives. I see it in our lives. There's very little fear of God. A young adult, high school, middle school, college, beyond, has been inundated with a type of humor and comedy that some of you may have tapped into and some of you not. But it's filthy and it's vile. It's gross sexually, often in cartoons involving bestiality. 
common things that kids who attend RUF, that's our campus ministry, will text each other and just laugh as if there's no consequence because it's just the fabric and the fragrance of the world that they're living in. You might think, yeah, this generation is really sick. If you grew up in the 80s like I did, go back and watch some of the 80s movies. Listen a little more closely to the lyrics in the movie Grease. It's not as wholesome as you think, even if you thought Sandra Dee was great. It's vile. And slowly the intensity of what is filthy and crude begins to take over and it becomes normative. It's not holy. The word of God says that we are to, to be holy because he is holy. The epistles and the gospels themselves write about what the life in Christ is to look like. In one section of the epistles, it says there should be no coarse joking among you. It also says in Ephesians 5.3, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity. And you might cling to that based on something I just said. And maybe that's not your issue, that kind of joking, or you don't see that around your culture. But let me remind you, the word says more, even in that verse. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or of greed. God hates greed. Greed is evil. And if you're greedy, you need to see that greed through the eyes of God, not your own eyes not the eyes of other people you might be connected to who don't see it as evil. Greed is evil, like sexual morality, like impurity. You see, a prophet proclaiming the word must proclaim what the word says in order that the people might understand who God is and see this through the right lens, which is God's lens. God tells us to fear him but he also tells us to not be afraid so that when the spirit convicts us of something specific, maybe even he's done it this morning, you have an appropriate sense of awe and wonder of him and then a desire to come to him knowing that you can say as a child of Christ, as a child of the living God, as one who's trusted in him, there's no condemnation for me as I come to him. But I come to you, Lord, because I know you want me to live for you. Now, this is important. Many today have a misunderstanding of legalism. And so they think that any list or pursuit of that which would be righteous that damns something as wrong or inappropriate, especially in the area of entertainment, is legalistic. My friend, you're clueless about legalism. Legalism is when you view your standing before God based on whether you do or don't do something. So to say, I want to stop watching things I shouldn't watch. I want to stop being greedy so that God will accept me more. That is legalism. But to say, the Spirit is convicting me of greed. The Spirit is convicting me of lust. The Spirit of, is convicting me of Pride, the Spirit is convicting me of judgment. By the way, I've committed all those in the last hour. I have. That is why I need the gospel. When the Spirit convicts, you go to him unafraid and say, forgive me and restore to me the joy of my salvation. That is not legalistic. 
It is not legalistic to say, for your glory, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, I want to live the life your word calls me to live. That's not legalistic. It's only legalistic when you either say, God loves me more because I'm doing those things, or he loves me less because I'm not doing those things. That is legalism. Pursuing holiness is not. So Samuel here is calling the people of Israel to be faithful, to have fidelity. They have broken their covenant promise with God. They have forsaken God. And Samuel is saying, return to the Lord. The Lord will not forsake you because of his great namesake and his pleasure to call you his own. He will not forsake you. Now, this is really interesting. When the people of Israel heard from Samuel the verbal rebuke and then saw the visual aid, they had the right fear. That fear led to them finally crying out. When they cry out, Samuel listens and says, don't be afraid. He will not forsake you. He then tells them, fear the Lord. That's the paradox, and it's beautiful. Before he does, he says something about himself. Now remember, at the beginning of the chapter, he said, judge me, judge me. Have I been faithful? And what do they say? You have been faithful. Now, after this profound rebuke, this profound teaching, this profound display of grace, this profound sense of remember what God has done in his faithfulness for you, he says, verse 23, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. They asked him to pray. He gives them instruction. And then he highlights the significance of what a leader of God's people is to do. And one of the primary responsibilities is to pray because prayer is powerful. And what Samuel says strikes me so much because he says, far be it from me that I should sin. He doesn't say against you by failing to pray for you, but far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. In other words, Samuel, I think, is saying, judge me later and may you never be able to judge me for sinning against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. In other words, he knew the power of prayer and what role it meant in his life as a prophet and as a prophet, a priestly type. Why is that important? Samuel, this book, is going to point us continually to the promise of a coming king. But our promised coming king is also a prophet and he's also a priest. And this prophet priest and king Jesus, whose birth we will soon be celebrating, is going to walk upon this earth. And what he's going to do is he's going to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then he's going to die the death that we all deserve to die because sin is evil. And what's going to happen is the Lord God himself, our Father, is going to send thunder, and he's going to send rain. And that thunder and rain is going to be his wrath. And that wrath that you deserved, that I deserved, 
that the people of Israel deserve, that all mankind has deserved, is going to be poured out on his son. And on that day on the hill called Golgotha, the skull, an unthinkable, unreasonable event is going to happen. During the middle of the day, it will be completely black. It'll be completely dark. Because what is happening is this God who will not forsake his people, this God who delights in calling a people to himself, is accomplishing what only he could accomplish. And Jesus says it is finished. And he dies. That wrath poured out on him. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. He walks up on the earth. Soon after, he ascends to heaven. And as he ascends to heaven, we're told, he's there right now, living to intercede on our behalf. Samuel said, moreover, let it never be for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. We have more than Samuel. We have Jesus who can never sin against you or against himself by failing to pray for you. And so when the Spirit convicts you and tells you that what you are believing or what you are thinking or what you are doing is not in line with the right way, my way, Jesus is actually interceding for you. And because he's interceding for us, we should have the right holy fear of God. The fear of God because he, the Father, would demonstrate his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ would die for us, his own son. But we don't need to be afraid because when we approach that holy throne, or when the Savior returns and every knee bows and tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you are in Christ, you're safe. Not only now, but for all eternity. Fear God. But if you're in Christ, don't be afraid. Fear God. Because you don't have to be afraid. And that's where Samuel leaves us. Verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? They had no knowledge of what Christ would do. They had knowledge of a promised Messiah coming. But we have something they didn't have. We have the ability to look back in his word and see what God has done. God has done everything necessary to show you and show me he's not forsaking us. He delights in calling us his people. Amazing Grace, second verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. Grace causes us to fear. Isn't that interesting? And grace, my fears relieved. That's what Samuel's saying. Fear God. Don't be afraid. Lord, these words are your words. 
They're straight from the text. And we're grateful. We need you so much. If there's anyone here this morning, Father, who has never professed faith in you, I ask Jesus that you would do that now, that they would embrace you and see that you are the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, Lord, lead them to understand what that means by seeking counsel with a friend that they came with or one of our pastors or elders, one of the women here who will be in the corners of the sanctuary today, that they may know what it means to follow you. Lord, as we sing this very familiar hymn, would you make us still? Would you cause us to drop our weapons and simply be present for a moment longer, singing of your amazing grace that taught us to fear and that relieved our fears? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.